the laws of quantum physics say things like this particle is behaving exactly as if it was in two places at the same time yes right exactly as if right no it's not like a, it's not like ah oh, well yeah you're going to give us an alternative which is more realistic right because obviously they can't be no no it's exactly as if there's, there's like lots of versions of the reality and all those different versions are adding together the sum total of them is our experience that's what the world is like that's just the beginning of how weird it gets Welcome, dearest listener, to another episode of the Pint of Science podcast with me, Callum Davidson, and my friend Jim Hake, who is currently stuck on a train between Stockport and Manchester, but will be here soon, I hope. Pint of Science is the festival that brings your favourite scientists into your favourite pubs, puts a pint in your hand and science into your ears. Taking place on May the 20th to the 22nd, we have over 600 events in 41 cities across the UK. Tickets are on sale now and they're selling like hot Higgs bosons. So head over to pintofscience.co.uk and grab one before they evaporate like a photon on a hot day. On this week's episode, we'll be taking you to the teeniest, tiniest particle to the biggest galaxy as we explore the universe with Professor of Particle Physics at the University of Manchester, Jeff Forshaw. From gluon emissions to the Big Bang, Jeff's interests and research span the breadth of physics. His current research sees him crunching the numbers from some of the world's most fascinating particle physics experiments like ATLAS and CERN's Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. Not content with being a cosmically talented physicist, Jeff has also turned his hand to writing a series of critically acclaimed popular science books with his friend and colleague, Professor Brian Cox. You might have heard of him. Jeff's been awarded the James Clark Maxwell Medal and Prize for Outstanding Contribution to Particle Physics, the Kelvin Medal and Prize for Outstanding Contribution to Public Understanding of Physics, and he's about to be awarded three pints by us for being an all-around upstanding guy. So pull up a pew, pour yourself a drink, and help yourself to a big frothy mug of Pint of Science. This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. So if you're interested and inspired by what you hear today and want to learn a little of the science behind it yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. Ooh. I guess to begin with a big overarching question, and what was it that drew you to particle physics as a field? I didn't like physics at school, so <laughs> I wasn't even drawn to physics originally. <laughs> I had a really rubbish teacher, um, this, so this is at high school. I was going to say, we're yeah, yeah. still all the way out here, so, yeah. like so this is 13, up, up 14. to all level, and it was still all level. Right, right okay. Well, well, I have it in my notes, so you got a B in O-level science. I got it in O-level <laughs> physics, I got a B, yeah, which, which actually was the best grade of anybody in the, in the oh, class. Okay, so yeah, still me and somebody good. else got a B. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, uh, in fact, we both ended up in Oxford. So the school teacher at uh, at, at all level was was he was interested in like, national service and uh, underlining with a ruler, uh, right. and uh, not interested in physics. So I had no I had no idea what physics was about, but I still did it at A level because I guess I should thank him because it was my worst subject. I needed to do something to stand any chance of even getting to be. So my dad, who worked at a cardboard box factory, got his, uh, one, his apprentice who had taken like a physics course or something, like a, a diploma, to come to the house and just give me a little bit of help. Okay. And he recommended that I get a particular book, Stephen Popel's Understanding Physics. Okay. And I remember it coming through the post. I was quite excited. It was the first <laughs> time I'd ever got any book like that through the post. So it was kind of more like your... And I just read it cover to cover. Oh, that was it. And, that and was I really it. liked it. <laughs> oh, so, right, okay. so it, it was, I really enjoyed it and thought, well, I, I fancy carrying on doing this now. Uh-huh. Just about got my O-level and then went to Wigan uh, Technological College, as it was then. I think it's Wigan and Lee College now. And uh, I, I had the guy who wrote the uh, Let's Revise Physics series, you know, the Let's series of books for mm-hmm. helping yeah. people at, at, at A-level. He was my teacher, and oh. he was brilliant. So I, I went from probably the, the worst teacher to, uh, <laughs> to an absolutely fantastic teacher, Jim Brythorpe. And that was it then. I mean, I was just hooked. And particle physics, just because uh, I, I like the mathematical side of uh, physics, 
uh, the way that equations can be brought to bear in understanding the way the world is. Mm-hmm. So I like that. And now physics is very good for that because it's a fairly tight connection between mathematics on the one hand and the results of experiments on the other. So you can really, really calculate stuff. And particle physics is the exemplar of that. You, know, right. you can really, because it's trying to understand the basic rules which underpin all natural phenomena. It's the modest goal, right? But, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the more you know about particle physics, the more attracted to it you become, or at least that, that, that in my case, because you start to appreciate that the rules are really simple. So there's, it starts begging the question, like, I mean, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> the whole of the world is being described by a set of rules, which you can summarise, I mean, somewhat facetious to say you can summarise the rules on the back of a postcard, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they, they are, like, just like you can describe the, the rules of a game of chess mm-hmm. fairly succinctly. I mean, it doesn't mean that you understand the rich diversity of <laughs> chess games, but the fact that, they, that, you know, there are some simple rules, which, and then all the complicated stuff emerges as a consequence of these simple rules. That's, I think, really the thing that attracts me most. Okay, so <laughs> if, if boiling it down to its simple rules is the aim of, of explaining something, you're kind of doing that with the universe, which is... Yeah, I see it quite as nice. like, uh, really, almost incomplete analogy to, to, to watching somebody play chess and then mm. try and work out what the rules are. Isn't that so mad? We're just doing that with with nature. Yeah. That all of nature can be explained by numbers. There's like a human construction in in a way. I don't that, buy that. That's yeah. No. That in a sense, it couldn't be any other way. I think there happens to be this thing that people have worked out how to think about that happens to describe the way everything in the entire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, works. the process is a little more complicated than, no, yeah, yeah. than the maths used by shepherds and counting yeah. you know, yeah. sheep. Or whatever, right? So it's, <laughs> it, maths was invented to solve practical problems, yeah. and uh, and it, it's the same maths now as it's been. You know, it's not been yeah. significant. You know, it's not like the maths has been kind of adapted in order to suit the physics. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's, there's on the one hand there's this there's mathematics, and on the other hand there is the universe, and it seems that the mathematics is capable of describing. The universe, mm-hmm. and the, there's a good quote from Einstein. I, I, I don't think I can get it bang on, but it's <laughs> something like, "The most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible." Something like that, yeah. Wigner yeah. so wrote a wonderful essay on it: the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Eugene Wigner is a mathematical physicist, so in the physical sciences. So it's uh, it's a great essay where he really emphasizes points out that this is this is it's, it's not. Trivial, you know. People who are religious, you know, use this kind of thing as a as an argument, a, a variant on the the design argument. For yeah, that. it is remarkable. It might have been, logically speaking, to, to to understand the fundamental rules of the universe. You would need encyclopedia. You know, you would need book after book after book after book just to describe how everything works. It turns out that everything is describable in terms of fewer and fewer principles the mm. more we understand it it looks like a, a design right like it's been designed in the way some other sciences perhaps are maybe concerned with as you say explaining some of that detail that emerges with physics it's more about stripping back all those layers of detail and saying hold on a minute like Big what picture. is at the very very <laughs> core of all of this that allows all other things to exist essentially which actually blows some people's minds myself yeah. included in, in the sort of like I mean, we'll get onto this later, <laughs> the whole philosophical debate about the kind of person that is drawn to those sorts of questions. Before we do, though, a much more trivial question. Yeah. Before you were switched on to your particle physics by your teachers, did you have any other things that you were super passionate about? Because I'm interested in what goes hand in hand with a, a physics yeah, brain. I've been talking with somebody about this r- recently, and I was really into statistics in sport. So, oh, right, yeah. okay. So I used to, like... I, gen- I, I had my own golf world rankings. I used all of the golf tournaments that were taking. So I used to get the like, magazine, which had the golf results in from all around the world with prize money. And then I wrote, wrote a computer program. So this is like on a, on a, on a Dragon 32. How old are you at this point? Yeah. So, so I, I was um, about 14, 15, something like that. Wow. <laughs> but I, it was, it was, I, I wrote a computer program to put, like, put all the results in and you could just about do it with the, with the 64K, like, expansion pack on the back of me <laughs> dragon and calculate these world rankings and I did it for other sports I did it for tennis as well so, so you had the numbers different. thing was there <laughs> the already ATP uh, tennis rankings yeah. a little bit you know and I, I was thought I'm a better 
<laughs> so I'm quite drawn to that, like, yeah, you know, rules, rules really, and numbers. Yeah, rules, numbers, measuring things. So it's it sounds boring, and I don't really think that I like to be associated <laughs> with, with that. I thought that would have been something a bit more romantic, but that's actually the truth. That's why. That's why I. Uh, was into. That's brilliant. I mean, because I was massively into sport, so it, it, it was a way of like tying together, you know, that kind of geeky interest and kind of like trying to say who's the best tennis players, you know, and was like, who's better on which surface, things like that. I, <laughs> I, I could answer, try and answer the questions using numbers. Well, I suppose that's the key thing, isn't it? If you, you've got your interest in numbers, and yeah, on the surface, maybe to some people that could be boring, but it's the questions you apply it to that's sort of uh, you've taken something that on the surface gets a bad press for being boring numbers or, or rules but you've used them to explain something that I would say most people find naturally quite interesting you know yeah. why we exist <laughs> why all things exist exactly and your PhD I have the title here was the, the parton content of photon and photon induced mini jets uh, was this about country music or tiny aeroplanes <laughs> <laughs> that actually the thesis it's not mentioned in the title but the, the thing no which I recognise was the major element of my thesis was uh, the derivation of the equation that describes the Pomeran okay <laughs> which led directly just a few years after so, so the guy I wrote that book with was my uh, ah, see, my okay. <laughs> so this Pomeran is named after a guy called uh, Isaac Pomeranchuk from the Soviet Union who'd made this calculation, this, this interesting calculation of uh, what's going on actually when, when two particles collide together at, at effectively, as, as the energies of the particles goes off to infinity and the particles glance off each other but don't break each other up. So they kind of just, so it's two particles, uh, two protons say, and they just make a glancing collision at almost infinite energy. <laughs> Because so it's quite yeah. this is the calculation of what's happening, how they communicate with each other in that interaction. Turns out to be extremely interesting. So the calculation you use the theory of the strong interaction, quantum chromodynamics, to do this calculation. And it's a mess. The intermediate steps of the calculation are an entire mess. And then everything collapses into this simple thing. It's as if it's as if one particle is being passed in between the two particles which is emerged, it's loads of gluons, it's an infinite number of gluons that are being exchanged, but they look like a single particle, which has the name, it's called the, the Pomeron. So when you see that doing the calculation, you think, well, well that's brilliant, this theory is amazing, <laughs> it's got this, you know, this, this beautiful emergent, because it wasn't there, it didn't look, you, you wouldn't have thought that was what was going to happen, you know, there was no hint that it was going to, and that calculation had been done by the Russians and developed a lot by, uh, the Soviets, uh, but there was little in the Western literature, and I got hold of a, an English translation of the original Russian journals and uh, redid the calculation in a way that, that I found instructive. So that that, that was the main thing that was and that, the, yeah. the thesis. So this was your, your the focus of your thesis was this, and this was at Oxford. This was no, that place. was here in Manchester. So oh, I was, right. an, I was an undergraduate. Ah, in Oxford, okay. and I came here to do my PhD. Ah, yeah. right, okay. That was presumably done in a, a particle collider somewhere, that was sort of the original experiment that you were looking at the data for these pomerons. Around that time there was a, a particle collider in Hamburg, cool. a Daisy Collider, which is now uh, a place where people who are into like, crystallography and stuff and synchrotron radiation so more biologists and biochemists are working but it was at that time it was one of the world leading particle physics experiments yeah and, and that was generating some of the data that we absolutely because I think that leads on this. your current research is looking at lots of data from experiments all over the world and looking for this is it this sort of thing that you're looking for no, no I'm, not, I'm, 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 not, I'm not doing anything to do with, with although it's never so far away you know, I'm interested in how quarks and gluons interact with each other Let, let's before we hold this can you define for me what quantum mechanics just, just give me a definition of quantum mechanics quantum mechanics is the set of rules that governs how tiny things interact with each other so this is where the name comes from a quanta being uh, quanta is the fact that it's specific actually it's not to do with the fact that you're dealing with tiny things I thought small yeah okay it, 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 it's to do with the fact that the energies of these tiny systems can only come in packets sort of certain values so the electrons in atoms can only exist with certain energy states okay so their energies are quantized 
boxing gluons, I'm Good aware. Yeah. With, my, with my physics brain, I know if I represent yeah. the average person, I'm already alarmed. If we take it to, so quantum chromo... Protons are made out of them, yeah. And the atomic nucleus is made out of protons and neutrons. So atoms consist of a nucleus uh-huh. of protons and neutrons with electrons orbiting around the outside. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time, in everyday life, everything that we, like the colours of all the things we see, the, you know, the table's hard, <laughs> whatever, all of those things are described in terms of particles interacting with each other, the atoms are interacting with each other, and they're interacting through their electrons. The electrons are, in effect, shield the nucleus so that the nucleus, which is where most of the mass of the atom is, is like a little P at the centre of the atom. And uh, in everyday experience, we're unaware of the existence of the, the, the nucleus, except that it gives mass. It's the thing that carries the majority of the mass. But all of the interactions are determined by the electrons. So chemistry is all about the electrons, of the way electrons behave in atoms and molecules. And inside those atomic nuclei are protons and neutrons. And inside those are quarks and gluons. And as far as we can tell, quarks and gluons don't have anything inside them. So they are the smallest things. As far as we can tell, right? But that might not be true. <laughs> yeah. I find myself, I was going to save this for later, but I'm just going to say it now. I find myself, my mind boggles that why people even thought to ask, if we take something like, yeah, your, your atomic nucleus as an example, how, how was it kind of discovered I, I, I that there was a... This. Well, it's the most natural thing in the world, surely, particle physics. <laughs> so I, I remember thinking, what if I get a chunk of material and I chop it in half, mm. and then I chop that half in half, and I keep doing that, what happens? Yeah, <laughs> That's I, what you mean. Yeah. I had a feeling this would happen. Yeah. I think there's a fundamental it's dichotomy in my brain. And yeah. <laughs> what is stuff made up of? And can you keep splitting things in half? Turns out you can't keep splitting things in half. That's the pretty cool thing. So, intuition goes to pot. So it's quite possible that the elemental constituents have got zero size. That, that no, is, sorry, that I, is I need that explaining. What, so what? photons, in fact, photons. As far as we can tell, photons are point-like, which means they've got zero size. And they have got zero mass as well. Okay. How do you know that? <laughs> How does one do an experiment so to that test was, that? that, that uh, the masslessness is, goes hand in hand with the fact they travel at the speed of light. So the speed of light, it sounds slight, slightly tautological, but it's, the speed of light is really the speed of massless particles. And that, that was predicted by Einstein in his theory of relativity, which is uh, like more than 100 years old. So the, just the mere fact that uh, photons, and it was Einstein also who played a big role in identifying that light is made of particles. Yes. Which sounds, I think A-level students used to be taught, certainly used to be taught that light is, is our wave. Right? This is the kind so, of level yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a wave and a particle. It could be both. This is yeah, it's, made of, it's made of these weird things, these, <laughs> these, these zero mass point-like objects, but which nevertheless carry momentum and are subjected to the laws of quantum physics, which are really counterintuitive, mm-hmm. because the laws of quantum physics say things like, this particle is behaving exactly as if it was in two places at the same time. Yes. Right? <laughs> exactly as if, right? No, it's not like, a, it's not like, ah, well, yeah, you're gonna give us an alternative, which is more realistic, right? Because obviously they can't be. No, no, it's exactly as if there is, there's like lots of versions of the reality, and all those different versions are adding together. The sum total of them, is our experience. That's what the world is like. So the idea of massless particles of zero size, that's just the beginning of how weird it gets. Yeah. <laughs> these particles also have the feature that they appear to be, not, not, I mean, appear is not the right word. We don't know what's going on. But you know when you say what actually is happening, which is obviously- Are we talking about our perception of- Of, of reality. Of all of, things, of, of, yeah, of, of okay, things. right. Like, well, because we're talking about these zero sized particles. Right. <laughs> Right. I mean, as soon as you yeah. say that, you say, "Well, that's no particles, isn't it?" Yeah, that's, that, that yeah. is my. Yeah. You say, and no, 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 it's not. That's not right. It's just because we're trying to imagine the grain of sand getting smaller. Mm. It's the, that's not the right way to think about it. There are these things which exist in nature. These things have got the property that when we uh, want to understand how they behave, we have to simultaneously say they're doing two different things at the same time. It's actually an infinite number of different things at the same time, generally. Why do you, why do you have to say that? Why doesn't the smaller and smaller explain, grain of sand... You can't explain work? the experiments, the results of experiments. I mean, that sounds a bit esoteric. You can't explain... So the, the development of a silicon chip, the transistor on silicon, so every, everybody's mobile phone, the computer, mm. everything, right? Completely dominated the, the modern world by the existence of the mm-hmm. semiconductor transistor, which is a switch, essentially, tiny switch, 
that uh, you can etch onto silicon. So there are trillions in a mobile phone. Those amazing pieces of, of, of miniature circuitry were developed at Bell Labs in the US um, in the 1950s by a bunch of people who were trying to find applications for quantum theory, which is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you can't understand, you can't explain how a computer works without quantum physics. It's impossible. So we know this, this happens because of the results of experiments that can't be explained so, in any other way except to yeah, say things must not be behaving esoteric, in this way. They're not esoteric experiments. Everybody should be you know, impressed and interested. In that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true of the whole podcast. Yeah. So when I think of an experiment, you're asking a question, and I'm wondering what, what question you're asking. At the point where you come to the answer that, oh, reality itself must be weird, and you come to this whole new concept, like, what was the start point for that, that the, experiment? This experiment, this is not how it was done historically, right? It was it's more messy. Historically, it's always more messy because you, you measure the things that are easiest to measure, which are seldom the ones that uh, offer the kind of pedagogical, lucid development intellectually. You mm -hmm. know, so you, you usually join in the story somewhere where in, in the middle of it where it's all complicated. That's being academic and then you have full to, stuff, isn't it? Arriving <laughs> and being well, like, oh, it takes, a, it takes a while to work out what's going on. Yes. <laughs> But uh, there is an experiment, which you can do now, because you can turn lasers down to sufficiently low power that you can do this, which is to shine a laser beam onto a, a, a hole in something. You know? so, okay. so you would shine it, and you would think there'll be a... If you look at the screen on the other side, there'll be a dot on the screen. Right. Right, because the light goes through and makes a dot. Yeah. Right? Well, what happens is you get a dot, and then a ring outside of the dot, and then another ring outside of that. So you get a set of concentric rings Bright dirt, bright dirt, bright dirt. Now that's understood. It was that was understood uh, in terms of waves in about uh, around about eighteen hundred by a guy called Thomas Young. So he said, "Oh, light's a wave. That means light's a wave because it's doing that." Newton, like, had talked about light being made of particles, but Young was clear. It's that this is evidence that light is made of waves. Okay. And if you think about it, if you if you look at water waves, if they, when they pass through some kind of a, a structure, the water waves refract as they diffract through, through apertures and things. If you stick two fingers into still water and just jab them up and down like that, uh -huh. you'll get circles coming out from each finger as you're dabbing them in simultaneously. And then they'll make nice patterns. You, just, you can see all these nice patterns that interfering waves mm. generate on water just by you know, just sitting by a canal and watching the, the <laughs> pigeons, watching the ducks swim by and stuff. So you get nice patterns. And that, that's what was happening here. So light was incident on this screen there was a little hole in the screen, you know, the pinprick-sized hole in the screen. On the other side of the screen, there were an alternating sequence of uh, light and dark regions. Understandable if light's a wave. That uh, makes sense uh, to me. I can see how that you would leave. That's leave. all fine, yeah. right? <laughs> now, if you turn the uh, intensity of the light down, lower and lower and lower and lower, it turns out, you see, that the light is not, the light is made of individual particles. And these particles hit the screen and make dots on the screen. They make dots. And if you turn the intensity low enough, in principle, you can make the dots arrive at the screen once every week. In week number one, the first dot hits the screen, little dot. So it literally looks like that. we've gone from the concentric rings around the central yeah. spot. You'll see a dot, right? Just dots. Then week number two, the second dot appears, dot. Uh -huh. In the same right. place? No, not somewhere else, right? And then you wait long enough, and the dots will make the rings. So if you go really, if you, if you throw loads of dots very fast, you can't see that it's made of dots, and you just see a bright ring and the a dark ring. The dark ring is the region where there are no dots. But it, this is happening like with one week apart, po point by point. Mm -hmm. So you're firing individual particles. I mean, a wave goes through all in one go and hits the screen as a splash. Mm -hmm. the, the image appears at once. It doesn't appear part by part, fragmented. So um, nobody can explain that except by saying that what's actually happening is that the particles of light are, are going into this hole and they are travelling to, to the screen by all means that they possibly could. And it's one particle of light. So one of these particles, say the, the one that hits the screen in week one, mm -hmm. right? well, how could it get to a particular point on the screen? Right? Well, it could go on the, through the left edge of the hole and reach that point on the screen. Yeah. Or it could go through the right edge of the hole and go to that point on the screen or it could go through the bottom of the, the... And so there are all the points that it could have gone through, mm -hmm. right? In fact, it could go through the bottom edge and then kind of do a little wiggle and then go to the point on the screen that you're interested in to calculate the likelihood that the particle that will hit the particular point on the screen that you're interested in 
for, for every way it could get there, there's a number, and you add the numbers up, and the sum total of all the numbers, one for each way that the particle could have reached that point on the screen, right? the sum total gives you the probability that it, that it does arrive at that point on the screen. Okay. So that means that we can calculate the likelihood, the odds, of any given particle hitting any given particular point on the screen, and the odds are what's in circles. Where it's dark, the odds of the particle going is really slim. Where you would see a bright ring, that's where the odds are really high that the particle would go, and so on. But the, the way you calculate the odds is bizarre, because you, you do it by saying, well, it goes this way, and this way, and this way, and this way. Each way gives a number, I'll add them all up, and that gives me the answer. And this is presumably something that was developed over a long time in Young's original experiment where he showed it this... Would have, it would have blown up Young's mind. I was going to say, this, uh, I'm assuming that took a hundred so years to work out. <laughs> yeah, it was Richard Feynman who, who said, if you want to understand the weirdness of quantum mechanics, just think about this. There's nothing else. People often, you know, when I give talks on stuff like that, that there's, they often think, oh, wait, yeah, I, I've got an explanation. I, I, I know why that's happening. That's definitely not me. And, yeah. and, and in the entire history, so, so these ideas were introduced in the early part of the 20th century. We have a, a, a mathematical description of what's going on, mm. which is extremely precise. The most, the most precisely calculated uh, quantities in science or in quantum physics. But when we try to explain what we've done to somebody, we have no idea. The best we can do is calculate the odds of something happening. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. You give up in quantum physics being able to say what will definitely happen. You say what the odds are of things happening. And then you say, well, how do you calculate the odds? You say, well, what I do is I imagine that everything that could possibly happen, happens, right? And for every everything that happens, I'll, I'll, I'll calculate a number, and then I'll add all the numbers up. And that's what gives me the answer. That's actually very... So, and if you don't calculate them all, well, it really did one of them, didn't it? You say, it really yeah. did, it did one. <laughs> yes. it, it, like, it went on one path, the particle. Well, if it, if it went on one path, definitely, you would not get the right calculation for where it... Now, if you know it goes on a certain path, you don't see the pattern. So people like to run with that analogy of, oh, everything that can happen does happen. People tend to give it a mysterious sort of vibe when they explain it. You're saying there's a rule. You give it a number, you add all the numbers together, that's the that's answer. It. That's it. As yeah. opposed to, oh, yeah. it could be this, it could be that. You know, people tend to run with these mysterious analogies that make quantum physics that. deliberately, yeah. 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 I, don't, I don't use hate very often, <laughs> but I hate that, yeah. <laughs> It's absolutely wonderful. The fact that the world is like this, that in order to calculate the likelihood of things, we have to go through these, this process, illustrates just how counterintuitive the world is. It's nothing like, it, it's a refreshing take on the cosmos mm. and the world, because it means that our everyday experience of it is misleading. The world's far richer than our, our everyday experience would have us, you know, we're, we're restricted to thinking about tiny grains of sand or little things. These, these things are behaving like nothing that we can possibly uh, encounter in our everyday life. So all that we can do is describe how they behave. You know, there will never be a, an analogy that we can point to because there is nothing analogous in mm -hmm. our experience. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the world is at its root described by things which have got no analogy in our everyday experience, I think is absolutely wonderful. It completely liberates you from all kinds of nonsense. And it makes the idea of like a god who is like kind of, it seems twee. <laughs> like like there's a god who kind of looks, it's like, well, it's, that's a bit that's simple. A bit, yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit rubbish really. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, I, I prefer, you know, the fact that the world is exceptionally mysterious in the, right? so the word mystery is appropriate. Yeah, right? well, exactly. And that is what draws you know, people to it, I suppose. Know, right? But it's not, it's not like woo woo. Yeah, like, you know, like. But you are an active researcher. In, in the simplest of terms, like what is it that you research? As I've gotten older, I've, I've started working on more difficult problems. Started so, easy. Like, it sounded yeah. easy so yeah. far. So, so, but I'll tell you what I'm working, working on. We use computer programs to simulate particle physics collisions in order to compare the theoretical predictions to what's observed in these particle colliders, like the Large Hadron Collider, where, oh. where you're smashing particles. So you write a computer program that essentially emulates what you think is, should happen, and uh, it's got all these quantum probabilities in it. You know, you calculate all these probabilities, you put them in the code. And these simulation codes are very sophisticated. They're not kind of bolted together and made up. It's the thing that I would put on the back of the envelope. <laughs> all right, okay. And it's, it's, it's the rules. Says so this is how quarks and gluons interact with each other, right? You can't change it. 
right? So what this code does is it takes that and it works out, it says, okay, now I've got a bunch of quarks and gluons, they're all going to hit each other, and a whole pile of stuff's going to come out. What comes out? How do the particles behave? But the data they, you're feeding into your simulation... There's no data that goes into the simulation, it's a theoretical... So the simulation, but the, the theories then, are they built from what's going on in these particle accelerators? The theory that underpins uh, QCD it was, was established... And it was quantum chromodynamics. Quantum chromodynamics. Yeah. It was originally established using data from particle colliders, yeah. and, although nowadays more primitive particle physics experiments. <laughs> but once that was established, it leaves you with a, a, a framework which is completely... There's no flexibility. You've not got any freedom. There's no. There's not a whole pile of parameters that need tuning. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's essentially one parameter in the theory, and that's it. And then you're supposed to be able to take that and go away and predict everything else. So it's like you're armed with the with the rules of the game of chess, mm-hmm. and then you want to write a computer program that plays chess games out, right? So I'm kind of writing the computer program that plays out the possible consequences. But it's a li- it's different from chess in that the rules dictate what the future will be. In this game. <laughs> so it's like a self-playing game of chess. Right? It's very machine learning. That's yeah, the yeah. You, you, say, you, you, say, you say, this is my initial condition. I'm going to collide these two particles together. What will happen? And then you kind of run the movie forwards. And the initial condition is always slightly different. And it's quantum mechanical. So it means that the probabilities of things happening, you know, a unique thing. It's not like a, only one outcome will, will be seen, even if you've got identical initial conditions. Okay. And you compare it to data from real experiments? Yeah, I mean, we've not reached the point yet where the code is ready to be compared to data from the Large Hadron Collider. Okay. So, uh, but that's the goal. So what we're trying to do is trying to make the calculations more accurate than they've ever been before by including a whole pile of physics which had been skillfully sidestepped. <laughs> I mean, it was really a brilliant bit of physics that made the calculation tractable on old-fashioned computers about 20 <laughs> years ago. But it could never be better than 10% accurate. So, but now with the data there, very high precise data coming from the Large Hadron Collider, and it, it, any deviations from the, the standard theory may, may be at the levels of percents, uh-huh. then you want the theoretical calculation to be accurate enough to be able to see small deviations from your expectations. So 10% is not good enough. Mm-hmm. So you make so your prediction using so the computer trying, trying to get better than 10%. Yeah. And uh, the, yeah, so, so it's, it's an attempt to explain how... The particle physics events that, that when, when you smash two protons into each other, a large hadron collider, a whole pile of stuff sprays out. <laughs> These huge detectors that are the size of like a cathedral mm-hmm. essentially take a photograph of what's come out. And what we're trying to do is to predict the probabilities of these photographs. Like the photographs will look like this, this fraction of the time. They'll look like this, this fraction of the time. And then we compare what we expect to what is observed and, and, and deviations are what would be That's the interesting thing, is this. Yeah. Jeff knows a lot of the very big facts about very, very small things. But exactly what's down there in the quantum realm and how does it work? How small can we go and what comes next? This podcast is made possible with help from Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org is a website and app that teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And Brilliant.org have a course on quantum objects, which can help you learn the basics of the science at the beating heart of the universe, and indeed us. We've put a link to Brilliant.org in the episode notes for this episode. The first 200 people to sign up through the link will get 20% off their premium plan. It's interesting to me that, I mean, the Large Hadron Collider gets a lot of press just amongst non physicists. It's the first kind of particle accelerator, I guess, I heard. That was the first time I started to be like, oh, what even is a particle accelerator? But the way you're talking, I sense they've been around for significantly longer than the LHC. Mm. And the LHC is just the the biggest, is it? The most impressive, the most... cool. Yeah, it's the biggest and most recent particle collider. Cool. Okay, that's good to know, because I'd always wondered if that was... It's the one that discovered the Higgs particle. That that, that was its greatest achievement. It's quite a complex thing to understand but I think it has captured the public imagination in quite a big way Yeah, and, and it's because physics has been sort of blown open these big questions you're asking 
do sort of draw people in. I think there are some well-repeated phrases around it, like it's sort of in the media and stuff. So saying it's trying to simulate the conditions of the Big Bang. Like, is that true? Is that is that um, accurate? Actually, that's, that isn't true, really. Okay, because that um, was something that I felt like I heard quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it is said often. Yeah. It, it isn't quite right, though. So what it is doing, it's simulating in cosmological terms it's quite a long time after the Big Bang I mean it's a, it's a tiny fraction of a second it's a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang but, you know, but there's, there's a lot of interesting yeah. stuff in the, in the fraction of a second that preceded it yeah. right? which we don't have any experiments that probe so at that time that the universe was a, a very hot dense plasma of particles is this so the, I, e- the epoch of inflation no this is this is after Damn. inflation this is, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is after the big bang so the big bang happens <clears throat> right the universe is filled with this hot dense ionized gas plasma and uh, it's something like a billionth of a second or something like that after the start of the big bang at that time the particles energies were about the same as they're being generated at the Large Hadron Collider okay as time goes on the energies of the particles diminish yeah oh right? so it's literally so, the... so it cools the gas cools okay it cools and cools and cools and it's cooled to the point where star, the stars and galaxies can form and then planets and all of that right so that's over over the course of several billion years that happens but at the beginning it was this very hot dense gas yeah and we can track the evolution of the universe from actually from before the Big Bang, so in the sense that we can do these calculations in inflationary cosmology, yeah. which predict how the Big Bang looked, and then that can then be used to predict how the galaxies look on the sky, what the patterns that the galaxies make, and it's correct, it works. Modern cosmology is uh, remarkable for that fact, that it can actually contemplate what the universe was like in detail, right, even before the Big Bang, and the calculations that stem from that so, are supported by experimental observations but it's it's not like the big bang because it doesn't create the high densities yeah so particles are colliding with each other in the big bang they're part of a, a very dense gas yeah right well that's not happening in, no, it's, in just, the LHC. It's, just it's just a couple of particles bang yeah. into each other so you're probing the interactions at the correct temperature or if okay. you like, at the correct energy but you're not simulating the conditions of. But I suppose yeah. that's true of any experimental model, right? You've got limitations. You're never going to create. But you can get closer. There is an experiment at, the, at CERN, which is at the Large Hadron Collider, which collides together atomic nuclei rather than individual protons. The LHC collides individual protons into each other. You smash individual nuclei into each other. You've got. You can kind of make them all melt, make a little miniature version of what was happening in the Big Bang at that time. So that does. There, is okay. ex- there are experiments there. They're not the main ones that I'm interested in. So they're, they're the detector that does that is called ALICE. Mm-hmm. Um, is, that, that's Atlas, is ATLAS the one that you... ATLAS and CMS are the two which collide individual protons into each other to try and work out what they're made out of. What does it look like when someone hits go on the LHC? Does, you know, presumably you shouldn't be yeah, in, there's, there's in nothing, there when it happens. <laughs> there's nothing to see. Nothing yeah. to see, okay. Well, there's a, a it's, data it's a vacuum inside, for one thing, so there's nothing to hit, with the, <laughs> right, except the electronics and uh-huh. the detectors. But in some particle physics experiments, you can see rings of light okay. as charged particles move through, like shock waves, very much like shock waves of things traveling faster than the speed of sound, like Concorde or something, or of ducks swimming faster than the uh, speed that water waves propagate on water. Uh-huh. So if ducks are travelling faster on water than the speed that water waves travel, then they leave a shock ball behind them. Yes. <laughs> and the angle of the ball tells you how fast the duck's going. How fast the duck is going. So that's, uh-huh. that's the same. You get a cone coming out from a charged particle moving through a scintillating material. That's, so that's, that's what I wanted to so you, <laughs> so you can't see that. It's a ring of light. So imagine a duck like... being fired at the speed of light. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I'm sure you've asked this question before, but the, the Big Bang, obviously, again, is something that I think even entry-level physicists like myself um, <laughs> kind of know about. But I think the, the kind of evidence for it is... I think people bring up often, like, how do we know that the Big Bang happened? So uh, th- there's quite a lot of evidence now. One is that we can predict how much hydrogen and helium and deuterium there is in the universe, mm-hmm. which can be measured. Deuterium being uh, an isotope of hydrogen. hydrogen yeah. And yeah. so how does that tell you that it must have happened? Let me use some nuclear physics and statistical mechanics and then calculate and tell you uh, how much there should, we should see in the cosmos today. So, in other words, we can explain that those are the lightest elements. So the lightest elements were made 
a few minutes after the Big Bang, the protons and neutrons which were in started to stick together. Okay. And we understand nuclear physics and we understand statistical mechanics. We teach it at undergraduate level. It's all very standard physics. Mm -hmm. So you can use that standard physics. There's no wriggle room. You can't mess about it. To calculate how much hydrogen, <laughs> helium and deuterium there would have been made if the Big Bang happened. And that's the dominant components of the universe. So we're, we're, we're like wood and you know, carbon <laughs> and whatever is, is kind of, come, that comes later. The dominant components of the universe are hydrogen, helium, and you can calculate in what ratio they should be. So that works, that works. So that's, that's the first thing, that's called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Mm -hmm. The second piece of evidence is the existence of what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right. right. So the Earth is bathed in microwaves. Right. So, and those microwaves, we can talk about them at a given temperature. We can say the temperature of these microwaves is. Mm -hmm. right. And the temperature is remarkably uniform of these, these microwaves that are bathed in the Earth. And it's a, it's a prediction of the Big Bang. The, so the, so, so you could just say, it's just there. Oh, but that's why I was <laughs> yeah, saying, why would right. your starting point be yeah. that there must have been a Big Bang and not just, oh, well, they're coming from somewhere in space yeah. and hitting the Earth. But the, pr the process for why this appears is, yes. is beautifully simple. Close to the Big Bang, there's a bunch of protons, neutrons, electrons, photons, particles like other particles, the matter particles and so on, all banging into each other. They're in a very hot gas. Mm -hmm. The universe expands and the gas cools. It cools to a point so nuclei can form. So before the nuclei formed, so a nucleus, for example, a helium nucleus will be formed through, well, let's do a deuterium nucleus, it's even easier. It's a proton and a neutron stick together by what's called a strong nuclear force. It'll bind them into a deuterium nucleus. But if the proton and neutron are moving too fast, then they won't stick together. Okay. So, when oh, so that's why hot, things have to slow. When, right. Yeah, when they when they when they hot, they, they just don't stick together. So they, they stick together. They make deuterium, and we can calculate how often that would occur. We can calculate the abundance of deuterium. That was happening in about a few minutes of the Big Bang. Run forward some three hundred eighty thousand years, and what happens is that the atomic nuclei, the hydrogen, helium, and the uh, deuterium, are zipping around, and the electrons are zipping around. Mm -hmm. At about three hundred eighty thousand years after the Big Bang, the temperatures cool sufficiently, the electrons can go into orbit around the atomic nuclei okay. the atomic nuclei are electrically charged a proton has got positive electric charge an electron has got negative electric charge so the, elect the electron is naturally drawn towards this is like really basic physics so you, yeah. and, it just, and so atoms start to be made At see atoms are electrically neutral and photons only interact with electrical charges so they stop interacting with the atoms so at that moment 380,000 years after the Big Bang just before it, the photons were bouncing around, hitting electrons and protons, zigzagging around. After that moment, the photons stopped hitting anything. And in fact, the calculations show that any given photon at that time has got a 90% chance of not hitting anything until the present day. So that means it just carries just on, on in a straight, straight line. line. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now imagine what the... So the universe should be filled with photons that have just been travelling in straight lines since then. 90% of all photons. Then. Right, yeah. And we, we are a ball in the middle. These photons that were... just happened to be heading in the direction of, the, of where the Earth would be, because mm. this is a long time before the Earth ever formed, right? And we're so far away that they're just arriving at the Earth now. Right, so in the time they were emitted long before the Earth ever formed, mm -hmm. they've been travelling towards that point. Mm -hmm. You know, the Earth in, in the meantime formed, and they're just arriving at the Earth now. Boom! Right. So this is Those like thirteen point eight billion. Travelled in a years. straight line. So, yeah. so the statement is, if, if if the Big Bang theory is correct, that you should be able to see these photons. In fact, these photons, if you collect them, there will be a photograph, literally, mm -hmm. of the plasma. And have we yeah, done this? Presumably we haven't yeah, done this. Yeah, I was going to say. We've got, and we, so we've got, we actually have taken a photograph of, the, of this plasma. Well, that's no, proof, isn't it? Yeah, and it goes on. So we can predict the features of this plasma. So its temperature is in accord with expectations. I said that these microwaves have got a certain temperature. That fits together with our understanding of how the universe has evolved since the time of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cross-correlation going on as well. Like the whole thing could not make sense, but the fact that the, the, the photons come in at a temperature of about three degrees above absolute zero, now the microwaves are at that temperature, is exactly in accord with our understanding of how the universe has evolved since that time. Okay. Right, so we understand the fine details in the microwaves. Like they're not perfectly the same in every direction. Uh -huh. And I said that they were characterised by a particular temperature, such as 2.725 degrees above absolute zero. 
but one one part in a hundred thousand, the temperature fluctuate. There are temperature fluctuations in across the sky. So if you look in one direction, the temperature of the microwaves will be different from the temperature in another by a teeny difference. Okay. Right? Like one part in a hundred thousand, the temperatures will differ. And we understand, so we can measure the fluctuations in the temperature of the microbes across the sky, and we can actually predict those fluctuations as well, using the theory of inflation. And they agree with each other. The patterns of the galaxies on the sky can be predicted as well, with the same theory, same Big Bang theory. See, see if you know what's going on in the Big Bang, uh-huh. right, then it, it, you can use physics to predict... What, so it starts off as a hot gas, but it ends up as a, as a, as a universe filled with galaxies. Yeah. Well, if you know what you're talking about, you should be able to predict where the galaxies will be. And are we able to I don't do mean that? Where every to single, a... Andromeda should be there, the Milky Way should be there. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a statistical statement. Like, how, how, on average, how far apart should the galaxies be? But presumably we can test that, that quite that, easily. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully in agreement. Right, okay. So we get the, the, the existence of the microwave background radiation, Big Bang nucleosynthesis, the fine details of the microwave background radiation and the distribution of galaxies across the sky, the pattern, the typical distances between galaxies, all of them are absolutely consistent. So you won't find any physicist who knows anything about cosmology disputing the idea that there was a Big Bang. There's no, there's no credible yeah, disruptor. That is, is see, it's always possible to reject even the largest mountain of evidence. Yes. Indeed, well, I think quite a lot of powerful people manage that. (laughs) And and that's an important point, actually, that scientists sometimes don't realise, is that that all evidence, there there is no statement of absolute truth in science. No. There's only a statement of... Not uh, disproven yet. Like, like, like what the... the, Yeah, so so you can say, here is a mountain of evidence, right, all of which fits with this particular theory. And you say, yeah, 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 it's it's accidental, right? It's accidental, and this other theory is the theory, the one where... God is just making everything be as it is. I mean, the great one is that the universe was created as it is now, one nanosecond ago. Um. <laughs> that's, that's a great theory. <laughs> God just made the universe yeah. exactly as it is one nanosecond ago. It's hard so, to argue with so that one, isn't it? Any, any evidence that you've got, <laughs> yeah. that was, you're just it's confused. in your memory, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you're all getting a bit day car, isn't it? That <laughs> just making it all. When you say the word theory, lots of people think it just means, oh, this is like an idea, but... Theory yeah. is actually it's, a whole got body. A of, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a whole body of work. Yeah. So people might say, "Oh, that's just a theory," but what it actually means is this is just the best possible. Yeah, theory in particle physics yeah. is very specific. It yeah, means yeah. A, a set of rules that yeah. will describe a system, mm-hmm. and it usually is applied to when the system is quite wide ranging. So it's not a tiny. If it's a model, if it applies to a a small number of things so so you might have a model describing how the electrons behave in a piece of wire yeah right but a you know a theory you know, the standard model is a theory of you know, the everything of, a theory of <laughs> yeah. it's, it aspires to be a theory yeah. of, of, of everything in the modest sense that I <laughs> explained before in the sense that like we're trying to work out the rules to chess so biology is like the equivalent of trying to really engage with the, 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 the wonderful games that can emerge in a game of chess. You can really like dismiss particle physics and fundamental physics by saying, it's like you, you're sitting there watching Gary Kasparov and you're spending your entire time trying to work out what the rules are. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just like, let's just see. Just enjoy the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the game is far richer than yeah. the rules. Well, that's so, such a, an apt comment for what I was about to say, which is that... I, at the very start of this podcast, said I've always struggled with it. I have a very different brain, clearly. My natural starting point with biology, for example, was that there were these very, I guess, obvious, visible stories to be told and questions to be asked about things that you can immediately appreciate. And physics, although when you have someone like yourself explain it quite eloquently and and point out why it's interesting, it does require a very, very abstract state of mind. Now, you're in an interesting position in that you both clearly appreciate the scientific rational side of it, but you've also published a series of best-selling and clearly highly engaging books where you have managed to find a way to make something that's so abstract so engaging. So what is it you think about physics? What's the thing you latch onto when you start writing a book? Where do you begin? Well, it is engaging, so it engages me. So, but it engages so, so many people. It is an attempt. So when I'm writing these books, it's, it's an attempt to share this connection. Right, when you decide you're going to write a, a book with, with Brian Cox, so a, a popular science book, as you've written three so far, what's your starting point for those? When you theme them, 
when you decide what you're going to call them, when you yeah. decide what the front cover is going to be. Book was an attempt to explain um, Einstein's special theory of relativity, particularly. Uh-huh. Um, so this is why does equal mc squared and why should we care? Yeah, that's what it is. It's like so. So what is that equation, and what is the significance of it? Because and why did you think that was an important question? Why did you think that was something that should be told? It's probably the most important, uh, famous equation in the world, I'd say. It is. I mean, Einstein's theory of relativity is a theory of space and time. So, so this is this thing I said before about humility and, like, kind of being humbled by nature. That That's a big driver in what I do, is, is to kind of... Uh, it's kind of the anti... Uh, you know, I'm really anti-people. I think the most dangerous people in the world are the people who, who, who know things uh-huh. with certainty. <laughs> yes. You know, people, people who... Are sure that they know things. I can't. I, I mean, I, I run away from people like that. They, are, they do quite well, right? unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, they do. Well, that was kind of that tied into what we talked about earlier, really. Um, which was that when you start writing, presumably, your research can't possibly touch on all the things you've written about. I mean, you've written about pretty much the fundamentals of you know quantum physics, relativity, the universe, it, and now black holes. It must start from a point of what is currently in the public eye, right? Or what, so, what is I mean, it? actually, the, the, all of that material is is core material for a theoretical physicist. Okay, so it is stuff you actually you it's, do it's, know. It's pretty much all stuff that you would teach to undergraduates. Okay. So nothing that we've written about to date is not in the undergraduate syllabus at Manchester University. In relativity, which was the first book, mm-hmm. it was all about time is not what you think. Right? You can travel into the future. Time travel into the future is possible. It's, Time travel it's, is it's, happening right now. It doesn't make any sense to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So it's almost as trivial a point as that. Yeah. Except, except that you can change the rate at which you travel into the future, ah. right, relative to somebody else. That's, oh, right, that's okay. the cool thing. You and I travel into the future at pretty much the same rate at the moment. But if, if I jumped onto a spaceship, zipped around close to the speed of light, then came back, yes. you could be an old man by the time I get back, and I've, I, you know, I've still got my pint. <laughs> Seriously. So. That, the rate we're drinking, that, I'm not sure that, you were. <laughs> that fact alone is worth writing a book about. Yes. And okay. explaining why we know that's true, right? So the books are an attempt at, rather than just saying this is the way it is, they're all characterised by an attempt to explain logically why it is. So there's a, there are, the whole deductive process is in, is in all of the books. The hook is, how do you know that? So then, uh, you know, 250 pages later, we, we're saying like, well, maybe you're convinced that we might know what we're talking about something that's probably often said by parents is when asked the question is because it just is and that's the opposite of your answer apparently no, nothing just is there's always like something. surely sometimes yeah, yeah. to your children yeah, something just is yeah, yeah. Because it just is yeah. Like, yeah. why do I have to do this yeah. because you just yeah. do the, the, the clarity thing is, is, is something that I feel you know I, I used to think you could be wishy-washy about stuff Right, that you could sit with in, with ambiguity, but I've no, no realised that that's different from being very clear that there's ambiguity. Right, exactly. So, so it's like just say you don't know. Don't try to put an, an, a spin on it. Yes. It's, it's, so you can keep everything simple. That I think has come in a large part from my background, as from come from the like working class from Lee, is where, where I was brought up. Everybody's no nonsense around there. There's no. Yeah. The, the people have got no truck with with getting to the point and m- saying how it is. Yeah, behaviour. It's like just <laughs> say what you mean. Right? Yes. Just be clear. Kind of going a full circle. Really, I started out in a community where that was the norm, and I've kind of gone through all kinds of like ways of thinking about uh, approaching the world. But being decisive in the way that you think about things is, uh, I think, it's more or less always possible. Right. We should. I agree be teaching children from a young age that science is all about actually not knowing what is you know that there is no uh, certain way the world works it's about questioning it at every stage but I suppose if you're looking at it from the perspective of hmm we need to get a class of 30 children mm-hmm. who are at different developmental stages understanding enough about the world that they can move forward is it helpful in a way to say right because I remember it was a joke when I was like going through my science education at every step that you went on to the next qualification they would say everything we taught you of the last stage that wasn't quite true that, that was basically <laughs> yeah, like a yeah, simple version right. yeah, yeah, yeah. the truth is this and that carries on until PhD when basically they say you know actually no one really knows <laughs> you just sort of have to work it out yourself yeah. and that's uh, but I, I can kind of see the argument that you need to almost step back and say you know we can't just say to like six year olds <laughs> like <"Ooh." laughs> we don't know it's just 
crack on, see what see what happens. I, that's what I say to buy. Uh, I've, I've got a uh, seven-year-old and an, an eleven-year-old, two girls, and they're they're. Uh, well, uh, you can't be certain, can you? And, and that's a yeah, a common thing. And yeah, it, it's great. I, I love the way that that, that just undermine. Like I like the, being undermined like that. I, I like the. It's like well, I don't know what's going to happen. Like when you die, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that fun? It's like, why do you need to? Like, this is a, it's a serious point because, like, there's a power thing going off. Well, exactly. Which yeah. a lot, a lot of people, right, subscribe to. They, they, they validate themselves in terms of how many definitive statements they can make. Yeah. It seems that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Whereas I feel it's one of the things that I'm, I, I'm very grateful for the education that I've had. The, the, the that I've landed up here, mm. that, uh, that one of the most precious things that I feel I, I, I benefited from is this non-attachment to certain knowledge. I just, it's not, it doesn't worry me that I don't know things. I wanted to ask a couple of probably quite relatively inane questions just about those books that you've written. They are obviously <laughs> amazingly successful. When you're writing them, you write them with Brian Cox. Do you divide up that job? We talk, we talk about what we want to do. And that can take quite a long time, actually, to and, and can lead to us going up blind alleys. So it takes a quite a while to identify exactly what it is that we want to uh, actually write about. Okay. And then hatch a few questions. And so then I go away and have a go at trying to put some stuff together. And I write for Brian, really, at the first. Oh, right, okay. So I, I kind of write at too high a level. And, yeah. <laughs> bit too dryly and just just to kind of bang it out to check that we've got the logic yeah. right and that process can be iterated a bit you know we spend quite a bit of time saying uh, is that really right so it, it really I like writing these books because they help me to really understand you know if you're trying to explain something complicated to somebody who doesn't know anything about it is a real challenge. It really helps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As this podcast has proved. <laughs> which, is, which is why I like yeah. it. I like, I like it. Um, it sharpens my understanding. It's why people like doing planet science. We get that all the time. Mm. Literally, feedback is that if you can't, if you go in to do your talk to the public and you see a sea of like completely confused faces, mm. or you, or you yeah, or you even start trying to explain it and you're like, oh god, right. it, it can, it can really. There's only one, there's a, a, a Richard Feynman famously said there's only one bit of physics. The, the whole of physics he reckoned he could explain to anybody, absolutely anybody, you know, and he, he could explain except for the Pauli exclusion principle. That was the only piece of physics that he had no... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Which I want to ask yeah, you yeah, to explain say, what is that, that right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to defer to Feynman. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess... Brian maybe then, comes and then, in and gives it the... And the, Well, then once we've gone through that process, then Brian, we then just take the chapters and he's kind of follows behind the... Ch so I, I, I've written this kind of rough draft and he just goes through and, and makes it in, in the, fir you know, the first version of the finished chapter. So he kind of comes along and then rewrites the chapters and then I'll, I'll go through. Yeah. And that, probably, that process probably... We, undergo say three or four versions of that for every chapter we ask people a lot on this podcast to what extent is it like an obligation of a scientist to be able to communicate to anyone because because there are people who just want to be a hardcore it's theoretical not, not, physicist it shouldn't be their kind of responsibility to be able to do that no no it, i mean that's just but that's how that's, the, that's a silly thing to, to say because there are people who are brilliant scientists who you would not wish to inflict upon <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they may have no good communication skills that's possible I think so, the simplification they thing should, is they shouldn't be then prevented from doing <laughs> their great science no absolutely but I mean it takes time to learn that skill doesn't it of, of being able to say what's the most I think people should be encouraged yeah because I didn't get involved for, for a while really I, I wasn't and nobody really encouraged me I just ag agreed to do a few things right, right. Like, like so I think I, oh yeah I gave a, uh, a, 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 a some lectures on quantum mechanics to in some initiative that the university was offering to the public here. Uh -huh. Like it was like five, over five weeks and uh, I did that once. Um, so I just, I, I that was quite late on though. I was, I was probably about 30 when I was doing that. So I don't know what you are now. What year was this? <laughs> 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 okay. So it's 20 years ago. Okay. So, yeah. I think it's hugely important. Yeah. Right? People sometimes overestimate the significance of the science they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. When you, if you balance things, the impact that you can have, if you've got some, some expert knowledge 
in this area or that. Mm. Sharing that with, with, with non-experts is immensely valuable mm. culturally. It, uh, when you're talking about educating society and just it's hugely valuable to like help other people to understand what it is that you've understood which is what it's all about there's nothing very sophisticated about it and it can work in the arts or in science it's just sharing this knowledge that that can be more important I think than, than writing the next paper sometimes and the knowledge is one it's, thing but it's like you say it's the it's the entire thing we just spent half an hour talking about it's the critical way of thinking if we walked away from this podcast today and I didn't remember what a, a glue on was or whatnot, it <laughs> kind of isn't really necessarily important but I think what is important is that people walk away and they say yeah, what's that approach to life? Where you don't yeah, just wander through being told. I've just one. been uh, doing a tutorial actually before we before I came here, and I was pointing out that, 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 that it's not you can do a whole degree in physics, and there's a whole pile of things that you, you that you, that you might think you're supposed to learn, like how does this work and how does that work? How do electrons behave in wires? How does light behave when it passes through a little hole? Whatever. Do you forget all that? The thing that's going to be of the most important significance is your ability to solve problems. So yeah. the, the way in which, and the way that you, uh, very specifically for physics, that's it's this problem-solving ability. But the way in which it changes the way in which you engage with the world, that is the most important thing. I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be. Did you experience imposter syndrome? It's a common complaint amongst yes. academics. You did, okay. That's yeah. not the answer I expected. Do you yeah. still? Yeah, I, I do. I'm from a working class background. So, like a proper working class background. So, my, my dad's family, proper working class, as though there's a discrepancy. <laughs> That's so, a fake one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm middle class now. I, I, I've kind of had these debates with people saying, no, I'm still working class. <laughs> but uh, coal miners, all the way on my dad's side. Right. And um, uh, my mum's side, uh, like uh, working in, in factories and stuff, in mills. I was the first person in the family to go to university. So, there's no background of uh, any academic achievement. So that must have been all. quite a big yeah, go, go to Oxford. Well, I can't do things all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, my life is essentially characterised by periods of confusion, long periods of confusion, followed by short moments of understanding something. The short moments of understanding something are good enough that I'll, I, I, I keep coming back to it. And, it's, and it seems to me that it's, it's such a good way of connecting with the world you know, I aspire to it, but I fail to live up to my own expectations like all the time. I've got a big star, me, the, the imposter syndrome. But I've, got, I kind of, I've also got the thing where I don't really care that much. I was going to say, <laughs> does, it, does it get <laughs> you down things. or do you I don't think? Care, like everything, I, the, uh, I see the sense of irony in quite a lot. Of, you know, <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do about it? Well, know? I mean, naturally, obviously, <laughs> I guess scientists are often very self-critical people. I don't think we've met anyone on this show no. who's had the... Well, no, we arrogance of the kind of, <laughs> I think it doesn't go hand in hand with science at all it's, it's, it's typically the case that you're yeah you meet these very impressive people yeah. who have clearly contributed a lot to I guess what you'd call human progress but then they, you meet them and they're like oh I don't even yeah, no know what I'm <laughs> yeah. doing it's luck really I think <laughs> that's such a consistent theme I'd like to do like a little uh, yeah. advert of like I think every podcast someone's been like oh I was just lucky yeah. it's like, well, you, yeah. can't, you can't all have been lucky you know, yeah. it's probably a bit of skill there. Yeah, I've just been banging my head against a wall this morning, two hours this morning, trying to understand how quantum fluctuations affect the inflaton field, which is textbook stuff. That's what I was doing this yeah. morning. Te textbook? Uh, well, I'm trying to like a textbook. <laughs> but no, it's, it really is tech. It's not, there's nothing, and I just, I'm finding it really difficult to understand it. It's and it's take, it's going to take, this is obviously going to take me a few days. Yeah. And uh, keep plugging away and eventually, so I think resilience is more important than anything else than becoming a... That's the main thing I learned in my PhD. Just keep going. Yeah. And know that stuff won't work time and time again. Yeah. And eventually <laughs> you'll find a way to... Yeah, I say that to my PhD students at the beginning of their, like, I say, look, I'm going to assume that everything that you show me is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think resilience and also being used to people criticizing you and not taking it personally. They were the two mm -hmm. key things I took away from my PhD. Mm -hmm. It was like if someone criticizes you, don't assume that they think you're a dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and secondly, yeah, just be resilient and and stick it out because mm -hmm. everyone around you is probably feeling the same way. Yeah. 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 I'm sure that's yeah. I do tend to notice talking to a lot of scientists in what I do that you see certain kind of like tastes emerge amongst different kinds of scientists. Out of interest, what kind of musical taste have you got? Living in Manchester, ah, a city well, of well, such music. Well, well, I go clubbing. You go clubbing? So, yeah, yeah. So I'm into like house and techno and 
Really? So that's my main interest. Yeah. This is amazing. I did not expect <laughs> that answer. I do know... Well, Sasha and Digweed are my age. <laughs> right, okay. So The front cover to, I think it's Universal, was a design by a member of... Peter Savile. Yeah. Who was one of the factory members, uh, Factory Records, with Tony Wilson. Right, yes, he, yes. He was one of the... We've all seen 24 hours, right? right? Whether he was like main shareholder or whatever, mm-hmm. Factory Records, which is the, in the Happy Mondays and... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, most and most major Manchester, Manchester music, really. How did that happen? So, well, uh, uh, Brian knew him. Oh, that's right, that's okay. Happened. But it, oh. it, it, it totally made my, you know, it, it made it for me that Peter Savile had, de- had designed, you know, I love Joy Division. Yeah. And, uh, and he designed the, the cover. He's done it for the last two books, actually. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah, because you've got yeah. a cool little, you've got a, he's I really like the minimalist yeah, design. He, he loves, he loves, uh, he loves science. He loves Have you ever been yeah. clubbing with Brian Cox in Manchester? That's no. Just a mental no. image I'm creating. No, here. He, he doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't do clubbing? No. Uh, I feel like there's a science documentary in this somewhere when physicists. I've tried to get him out, but he's, <laughs> he's not into it. <laughs> this podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering, or computer science. And they've got an excellent and fascinating course on quantum objects and the unravelling of what makes our universe tick, which you're bound to love. Especially since using the link in our podcast description will get the first 200 users 20% off their premium plan. Welcome back. Jim has rushed off to catch a train, but I'm here to let you know that the Pint of Science podcast has just one episode remaining, listeners. We only have one to go at this stage for series one. Thank you so much for sticking with us this far. We have had some excellent scientists on the show. I mean, Jeff Forshaw, one of our best guests, Forshaw. Sorry, I had to get that joke in somewhere. Jeff took us through some of the most complex physics in what I believe was a pretty spectacularly understandable manner. The Pint of Science podcast is, of course, something you should be telling everyone you know about. If you've not let your family know yet, shame on you. If you've not let your friends know, I'm not happy. Tell everyone you know to use the hashtag Pintcast19 on their social media accounts. Uh, You should also be listening to all the episodes we have out so far. We have eight prior episodes to this one, so you've literally got... I'd say over 10 hours worth of science to listen to. That's pretty impressive. That's going to fill a few train journeys, surely. Thank you once again to the Salutation Inn for hosting us for the third time. They are definitely coming out on top of the league tables of pubs that have provided a welcoming and cosy venue for the Pint of Science podcast. So if you're based in Manchester, do make sure you pop on down to the Salutation Inn. They've got a dartboard. I mean, that's pretty rare nowadays, right? They've got a dartboard. So get your tickets for Pint of Science now. And we'll see you next week for our final installment of the Pint of Science podcast with... Ooh, I'm not going to tell you.